Am I on? Yeah, I'm on. Uh, I hope that was enjoyable for you watching and for those participating, those of you who are brave enough, thank you for being part of that. I'm going to ask you all to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 4 because we're going to talk exactly about the importance of what we just watched. But we have to do a really nerdy thing first. Jesus wept is not the shortest verse in the Bible. This is, this is one of these things we believe that's not true. Does anyone know what is actually shorter? No, good guess though. It is the classic Job 3 verse 2. He said... That's it. So it's shorter in characters than Jesus wept. So I'm just, if we're going to be correct, we just have to be correct. It's just one of those weird Bible trivia things that nobody ever seems to know. So here's the question for us is, uh, how many of you grew up doing memory verses? Most of us. How many have kids that you're trying, maybe through Sunday school or, or at home in a different thing, trying to help? Memorize scripture. Less of us. So that would be what cults or, or what the trends are showing us is that we know less and less about the Bible by the time that we graduate high school now than in previous years. And I think that's a concerning trend. And, and Bible quizzing is one of those opportunities where we get to teach kids scripture because the point is not to win competitions. The point is that God's word goes into our hearts so that it comes out of our mouths so that we know it. And so we as a church and, and the other two churches present here as well, this is where we place everything is the Bible is the inerrant and authoritative word of God. It has everything that we need to understand who God is, his plan of salvation, and how we ought to respond to that plan. And so the question is, if this is then literally... From an eternal standpoint, if this is the most important book that you and I will ever hold or ever read, how well do we know it? How well do we know the words of Scripture? And my goal here is not to kind of say, you know, to, to belittle you or to make you feel like, man, I don't know Scripture. My goal is to challenge us to get excited about Scripture. That we would go, man, the words in here, they're written straight from the Holy Spirit to us so that we would have everything that we need. Peter will say, for everything that we need for life and for godliness. And so if we believe the Bible, then my challenge to us is, how are we going to learn how to memorize and to study? And again, the point is not just that we know verses, but that we understand the heart of the one who wrote it for us. And so this is why we're going to read uh, from Matthew chapter 4 in just a moment. And it's maybe a familiar story. Uh, it's Jesus being tempted by Satan out in the wilderness. And as Peyton already uh, showed us in one of the questions that was asked, is why is Jesus out in the wilderness? He's being tempted by God. And how does he respond? Every time he responds only with one thing, the words of God. And if Jesus responds to temptation only by quoting scripture, then don't we think that that ought to be a really important thing for us to consider? Before we get there, let me read to you two other passages of scripture. Joshua 1 verse 8. I saw somebody who has a Bible that has the very next verse on their cover this morning uh, at the back. Joshua 1 verse 8 says, 
This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Now when Joshua comes along, Moses has, has just died. Joshua is the new leader. And he kind of stands up and he says, this, this is what matters, is we need to know what God has written to us, partly because what we saw in the first five books of the Bible is that God would, in his grace and his mercy, reveal himself to the people, but they would continually choose their own way. And Joshua says, this book, we should meditate on it, we should study it, we should know it, so that we're careful to do all that is written in it. From Old Testament to New Testament, in uh, 2 Timothy, there's a 3.16 is a very well-known verse, but I want to read three verses here, 14, 15, and 16. Paul tells this to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you notice the similarity between Joshua and what Paul says? So often we think of Old Testament as only law, and you have to obey so that, well, that was never the point. The point of the law was to always point us to the fact that we would need one to come and obey it perfectly on our behalf. But it's truth. And if we live by the principles of Scripture that we read, our lives are going to radically change. And so Paul tells us all Scripture is breathed out by God. That means every page in your Bible is God's Word spoken to you and to me. And so there's nothing in it that is irrelevant, there's nothing in it that's unimportant. And that can be challenging when we get to places like Leviticus and we're learning about the sacrificial system and, and a culture that's so many years removed and a practice that, that we don't understand and it can be easy to just go, I don't really need to know this, this doesn't apply to me and move on. But we're never fully going to understand, well, we never will fully understand Jesus, but we're not going to have a mature understanding of who Jesus is and what he's called us to do unless we understand all of Scripture. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So let's read together Matthew 4. We're going to look at a couple of quick observations here. I promised I would be fast because it's almost noon. If you're visiting, you're going to think this is a normal sermon, but if you're not visitor, you'll know this is a short one. Chapter 4, 1 to 11 says this. And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Let's just stop there for a second. Two things in those two verses are super important. Who was it that led Jesus up into the wilderness to be tempted? The Spirit of God. I think often we look at it and we go, all of temptation or testing or all of that, that's bad and that's negative. But actually James will say later on that it's good as long as we submit to Christ because it develops perseverance. It develops a steadfastness in the truth. So Jesus is led out by the Spirit to be tempted. And then after 40 days of fasting, he was hungry. There's the understatement in Scripture of the... Just, I don't think it could be more understated than that. Is anybody done 40 days fasting? Anybody done two days fasting? And how hungry were you? 
the longer we go, right? So, so um, what we know about the human body is that actually Jesus takes us to the, to the extreme. At 40 days of fasting, your body begins to consume itself. It's just an interesting little side note to point out there that this is not Jesus because he's God doesn't need food. This is Jesus taking it to the peak and to go, I'm trusting God fully in everything that I need. And at the end of those 40 days, he was hungry. I wouldn't say very hungry, right? Literally starving. There's an acronym that um, addiction counselors use called HALT. And what does HALT stand for? Does anybody know? Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Psychologists talk about this because they say when we're experiencing one of those emotions, or perhaps more than one of those emotions, we're at our weakest point emotionally and physically. And so maybe that rings true to you when you think of when I'm, when I'm hungry, I make bad decisions, or I snap at my kids, or I don't love my spouse the way that I should, because there's this thing that's there. We call it hangry, Right? When we're angry, well, that's pretty obvious. When we're lonely, when we're alone and isolated, it's very easy to give in to temptation because we can think, after all, who's watching? Well, the truth of it is, who is watching? God's right there with us. Tired. Well, this one is pretty obvious. I know some of you have had or are currently in jobs where you have to work demanding hours. Maybe a nurse who is in shift work where you're doing many, many hours on top of each other, what happens when we get tired? If you've ever written a sermon when you're tired and then read it the next day, (laughs) you've been very disappointed with yourself. (laughs) When we're tired, our brains don't work as well as we think we do. And the funny thing is you can argue, and parents, you've done this with your children. You go, I can tell you're tired. You're not making any sense. And what do they say? Do they go, I think you're right. I'll go have a nap. (laughs) What do they say? I'm not tired. And here's why. And then they spout nonsense for a few minutes. (laughs) Now flip the script. And if your children said, parents, you're tired. And you went, yeah, thank you. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just going to go have a nap here. But the, the reason I say this is think of the context that Jesus is in. We know explicitly it's stated that he's hungry. Now, I don't think the anger applies to him in this, but we do see Jesus becoming angry in the scripture a few different times. Lonely, well, he's 40 days by himself without food. Tired, I think it's implied. My point is simply this, is that Jesus is at his weakest state emotionally. And this is when Satan comes to tempt. This is when he comes to try and get Jesus to sin. And Jesus' response to this, and we've already talked about this, but I want to flesh this out a little bit more. Jesus' response, and we're going to read it in these verses, is crucial for us to see the importance that we ought to know and study Scripture together. So verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, notice that word, if? Doesn't, Doesn't Satan know full well this is Jesus? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple 
And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Three times, three temptations and three responses quoting Scripture. I'm convinced of this, that we will only speak about the things that we know. If we don't know Scripture, we're not going to speak about Scripture. If we don't know the Word of God when temptation comes, we're not just going to all of a sudden start quoting things that we haven't read and studied and learned. At least not as a rule. Jesus, when we read about him growing up, and there's kind of one little story of kind of when he's around 12 years old and he's in the temple, and what does it say that the people say about him? Basically, paraphrase here is, how does this little kid know so much about God's word. Now again, we can say, well, Jesus wrote it, so he knows. How many things have you written that you've forgotten? How many things have you said to your kids that your kids have reminded you later that you've forgotten? (laughs) To know something means we study and we learn. I remember being a Bible college student, same place that this lovely family grew up at. And I remember going there in my first year, and there was an older man named Mr. Peeler who was the president of Miller for 50 consecutive years. 50 years he was the president of the Bible college. Well, he was long retired and in his 90s, and every single student that came onto campus, he would shake their hand and he would say your name because he had gotten a picture of every person. And so he knew who I was, and he knew who my parents were. And he asked me questions. And I thought, this is an interesting fella. And then, the, you know, on the, showing my cards here, the very rare time I went to the library in my first year of studies, <laughs> every time I was there, Mr. Peeler was there. Mid-90s, in a little cubicle, scripture open, commentaries open, studying the word of God that he had taught for more years than I'll probably be alive. And yet he continued. And he studied, and he studied, and he would often talk about how it was a well and that there was more to learn and more to learn, and you could never be completely satisfied with God's word because it would always leave with, I want to know more about this creator. I want to know more about my redeemer. Well, Jesus knew the scriptures, And so he has three different temptations given to him, and he responds accordingly with each one. And and I just want to go through them one at a time each because I think this is really important for us. As I said at the beginning, he said, if you are the son of God. And he says it in the second one too. Why does he say if? There's some mockery for sure. He's really going, prove it. What is that appealing to? Isn't that appealing to our ego? Our own pride. When does sin enter the world? What is it? It's pride. 
Satan goes, if you are the son of God. And Jesus doesn't need to be baited into that argument. He knows full well who he is. Now here's the question. Do you know full well who you are? Do we, are we so firm in believing that I'm a child of the king and he loves me desperately and he has what's best for me and he will give me every good gift that I need? Or do I trust in me and I try to accomplish all those things on my own? And do I lose sight of who I am? Well, Jesus knows who he is now. But again, Satan goes, if you are the son of God, prove it by stones to becoming loaves of bread. In other words, you know, you've been fasting long enough. Why don't you just eat something? Oh, there's no food. Why don't you just make a miracle? Just, just make it easy and, and you'll be fine. Satan is trying to make it so that Jesus' hardships are lifted, and I think this is one of the biggest challenges, and so hear me this. This is one of the biggest challenges our culture has is that we think that all hardship is bad, and we think all suffering is awful, and we try to alleviate it as much as we can. What we need to do is we need to read Scripture, especially maybe read the book of Job and see how we ought to have a biblical perspective of suffering what God's actually trying to accomplish in and through our lives. We love it when things go well and when there's celebrations and when there's joy, but when we get, when we're in the hospital and we get a diagnosis that causes us fear, do we rejoice knowing that God is at work? I don't mean to pretend like we're happy about everything, but do we rejoice that he is in control and that he is working in and through us? Or do we just want to alleviate it as quickly as we can? Why do we think addiction is such a big problem in our world? Because we don't want to deal with the stuff in front of us. We want other ways to walk through it. Well, Jesus answers, man shall not live by bread alone, but by, the, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now again, this is curious because Jesus has taken it to the extreme and he is about to get ministered to, to the, by the angels. So he knows that this time of fasting is right near its end. But he also knows that his hope is not in food. His hope is in his father. How do we relate that to today's world when many of us, we say we're hungry, but we just ate three hours ago? Well, here's how I think we can apply this. Our hope is not in the material, but our hope is in the spiritual. I don't know about you, but living in North America right now, there's some can we say political concerns? There's some rough stuff. Well, do we think that if, the, if a new government comes in that all those problems will go away? Is our hope in man or is our hope in God? I think that's how we can see and apply these things to us. It's not, it's not by the material that I find my hope, but by going and understanding the word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, Satan's cunning, right? We read that in the scriptures lots. So he changes tactics here. Okay, if I can't appeal to your vanity or to your pride, well, then let's do this. So the devil takes him to the holy city, to Jerusalem, to the top of the temple, and he says, again, if you were the son of God. So he's still appealing there. But then he quotes something. He quotes Psalm 91, 11, and 12. But if you go to Psalm, uh, pardon me, Psalm 91, 11, and 12, you'll notice that he very conspicuously misses a little bit of the quote. He doesn't quote the whole thing in its context. 
Commentator Michael Jenkins, or sorry, Michael Wilkins says this, the devil's quotation of Psalm 91 is a blatant misuse of scripture in an effort to manipulate Jesus. How often is our Christian world guilty of using scripture to manipulate others to accomplish our purposes? It's never quoted in context when that's the case. In fact, it's pretty easy to make the Bible say just about anything if we just read one verse and ignore the stuff that comes before and after. It's what Satan tries to do to Jesus. Are these two things true? He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bury you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Yes, it's true, but this is not the context to apply that. Here's one of my biggest pet peeves. When somebody comes alongside someone in suffering and they quote Jeremiah 29, 11, they say, God has plans for welfare and good for you. Not for harm, but for good. Is there a principle there that we can take to be true? Yes, but remember that he is writing, Jeremiah is writing to a people who have been in exile and they don't have a hope, they don't have a nation any longer. And Jeremiah comes and says, don't worry, God has a plan. And he's going to restore you. The future is that you will be brought back to your place and the temple will be restored and you will be able to worship God again. And so there's a context there that makes it very clear so that when I go up to somebody and I find out that they have cancer and I I shouldn't say to them, don't worry, God knows the plans he has for you. They're not for harm, they're for your benefit. And there's there's some principles in there that are true that we can talk about, but we can't misquote scripture. Because then what happens when somebody goes, well, I thought God only had what was good for me in store. And now I'm going through all this hardship and crisis and difficulty. I don't want to serve that kind of a God. It's because we didn't tell them who God was. We told them who we would like God to be. Another one that's really commonly misquoted, and we've probably all said it, uh, hopefully unintentionally, is, is the classic, God will never give you what? More than you can handle. There is not a more inaccurate statement about Scripture than that. If I don't need, if God doesn't give me more than I can handle, then who's in charge? Me. I can do it on my own strength. I can get through it. I don't need to trust in the Lord because He won't give me more than I can handle. That's a misuse of a, a Scripture passage in Corinthians that talks about that God will not lead us into a situation where temptation. When temptation is happening to us, that the only response we can make is sin. God will not lead us to that moment. He will provide a way of escape from that temptation for us. Now, do we take that way of escape? That's a different question. But it's making Scripture say things that it doesn't say, and that's what Satan's trying to do to Jesus here. Now, again, Jesus is the author of the Scriptures. So he goes, nice try. You can quote that to me all you want, but you're misquoting it and you're misusing it. And so his response, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You know, one of my, another, I'm just airing all my dirty laundry here. One of my other pet peeves in scripture is when we think of Gideon and we'll say, well, we're just going to lay a fleece out. Except we forget that the whole point of the story is that God is very disappointed that Gideon doesn't just take him at his word. And he concedes and gives him the, the fleece being wet and dry and dry and wet and that whole thing. But it's not a sign of Gideon's faith. It's a sign of Gideon's lack of faith in God. And so we, we, when we say, I'm just going to throw out a fleece, we might as well just say, I don't really trust God, but I'm just getting on, I'm asking one more time. Rather than going, God, this is hard. I don't know what to do, but I trust you. Help me to follow you. 
See, we live in a time again where our Christian world, Christian churches, especially across Canada, are moving away from very core doctrines. And they're using parts of Scripture to say things that Scripture doesn't say. And it sounds logical at first if we don't know the Scriptures. And then we can get sucked away from some really core things. I said this last week, and I've said it a few times in our church, but one of the biggest dangerous doctrines that's coming into the Christian church in Canada right now is that the resurrection of Jesus was a metaphor and not a historical event. And if that's the case, then we throw out the rest of the New Testament because it becomes irrelevant. And I don't say that to like try and, and like make it sound like, man, this is the very last day because this is happening. It's crazy. We need to. My point is simply this, is there are people who would call themselves Christians who are saying that I don't think Jesus actually rose from the dead. Well, are they reading the scriptures that you and I are reading? Or are they sitting under teaching that is twisting the scriptures? We need to know the scriptures so that we can spot the error. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews says it this way in chapter 5, verse 14. He says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Have you been practicing your discernment so that you can know good from evil? I've used this example before, but counterfeiters, um, the people trying to determine what's a real bill and what's an authentic bill, is they don't study the false bill. What they study is the true bill, the one that is perfect, the one that everything else compares to. And when it doesn't compare to the truth, they go, this is false. You and I need to do the same thing with the scriptures. We don't need to worry about what YouTube says and what this teacher says and what that author says. We need to worry about what the word says. And if what that teacher is saying is true with what the word says, then great, by all means, sit under that teaching. I say this all the time in our church, but if I come up here and I tell you, you know what, guys? We're not going to talk about the Bible today because God's given me some brand new revelation that nobody knows. That's where you do what? Get up and leave and throw some grapes on your way or something. We're always going to say, what does this book say? What are God's words that are completely sufficient for our salvation say to us that we might know who he is? The third one. So he takes him to a high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and he says, all these I will give to you. Do you kind of take pause for a moment when he says that? What's Satan offering him? What he already has. Is that not manipulation or what? Maybe your kids have done this. Oh, Dad, I'll give you this. If you do this, you know what? My hard-earned money paid for that. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't say that. But the point here, right, is Jesus, right, according to Colossians 1, we talked about this with our Bible study groups, is that Jesus was the agent of creation of the world. When God spoke, Jesus spoke, and the world came into being. He has created it all. None of it belongs to Satan. So when Satan goes, I'll give it all to you, Jesus isn't tempted by that because he knows it already belongs to him anyway. Well, there's some truth for us in that too, isn't there? The world can offer us nothing greater than what Jesus has already offered us on the cross. Nothing. 
And we can look at it and we can be tempted by it. We can say, man, some of these things of the world, they look really good, but they only satisfy for a very short time. And our culture is a real good way of showing us this. After all, we were talking about this the other day. There's now 15 different iPhones out. And we always think when the next one comes out, we better upgrade because we need the newer one, the better one. How many things do we have where what we have is sufficient and good enough and and Shayla and I had this conversation about our vehicle because Hyundai keeps phoning us and going, hey, we noticed you, yours is four years old. Would you like a new one? And you're like, ooh, the new one's got fancy things, <laughs> right? And they're like, ooh, here's all the features that it has. And it's real easy to be sucked into that and to go, I need more, I need more, I need more. Why do I need more? Because none of it satisfies. Not with any longevity. Only God satisfies. And so when Satan comes or, or when we're tempted, as Paul says, by our own sinfulness, when we evaluate and look at it, what we're saying is, here's what God has, here's what the world has, and I actually want this, even though I know it's not going to satisfy. I know it's not going to help. I know it's going to cause me heartache and problems. Let's get real personal here. If you're married, you know that every time that you raise your voice to your spouse is not good. And yet, how many times do we do that? When we're parenting our children, Scripture says not to exasperate them. How many times do we do that because we're frustrated? It's so easy to get sucked into the things of the world. Jesus did not allow that because he went, first of all, I've created all of it. And that's not why I'm here. That's not my mission. My mission isn't to rule, at least not yet. Jesus says my mission is to go and to make sacrifice my blood for everyone's. Now there is a day when Jesus is going to come and rule. And in that moment, Satan's, if he doesn't know already, is he's going to know he's conquered. Jesus is one. Again, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6 a few different places in these scriptures. One book of 66 in the scriptures, now 39 that Jesus had access to at that point that were written. One book of 39, how much more do we think there is in the other 38 for us to know who God is? Friends, as we watched and witnessed and laughed and watched one team beat the other, I hope that in some of the questions that were asked, if you didn't know the answer, I hope that you weren't guilted or shamed, but I hoped you were I should know that. I want to go and find that out. This verse, this truth, this question, I want to know Scripture. Paul would say it this way, I want to know Christ. Not just intellectually, he wanted to know every bit, every part of him, including sharing in his sufferings. Here's what I know from experience, and I think you know this too, is life is messy. And it's hard. And there's some good moments and there's some tough stuff. And there's times to celebrate and there's times to mourn. And I think we all know that temptation creeps in in all kinds of ways at all different times. I'm convinced by what Scripture teaches us, not just here but through all of Scripture, that if we know God's Word and we're committed to knowing what the Scriptures say, then when we go through those seasons of temptation, and let me just clarify, I do not do this well all the time. I am not standing up here going, if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't sin anymore. I promise you, I probably sinned this morning already a few times. 
but do I remind myself of the truths of Scripture? When something is being presented before me as an alternative, something that I should worship or something that I should give my allegiance to, am I reminded that Jesus died on the cross for me, that he might give me a new way, a new hope, and a new purpose? Do I believe that what he has is better than what the world has for me? I say it so often that you're probably sick of this, but we need to preach the gospel to ourselves how often? Every day. Every day I need to be reminded of the truths of Scripture, that Jesus loves me and that he's for me and not against me, that he has purpose and hope in my life and in your life. And so as we close here and as we go and eat together, I hope we fellowship together. I hope we grow in our relationships together. But I hope that as you go home after that, that you decide, man, I really want to read this book more. If we want to know God more, this is how we get to know God more because it's his words written to us about who he is. So let's study. Let's be firm and grounded that this is the truth and this is where I'm going to lay all, I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket and it's the word of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a a great visual example of what knowing scripture can look like and and a reminder that it doesn't matter whether we're young or whether we're old, that we can study and we can know these things. You have given them to us that we might read them, that we would retain them so that we would know who you are. God, may we, as we go home today and into the week, may you renew this depth of love that we have for you manifested in loving the scriptures because you are the author of life and you have written to us who you are. May we get passionate and excited about studying the word of God because we want to know you more. God, thank you for our three churches that can gather here, that we can all come together and that we can declare, in your word do I trust. And your word is my hope. God, I pray and I, and I hope that you have been honored and glorified from us this morning. As we move into the next room here and as we spend time of fellowship over food together, God, thank you that we have such an incredible opportunity to eat and to fellowship together. May we care for each other. May we love one another out of one motivation because you first loved us. Go with us today now. We love you. Amen.